Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's troisième arrondissement. Anyway, my guest today is uh, George Black. Uh, he's written extensively on India, Central America, China, Iraq. Uh, you mentioned the three rivers, but I suspect you're not talking about the Monongahill and the Allegheny and the, and the Ohio. <laughs> talking about the Housatonic River in Connecticut. <laughs> okay, there we go. And uh, the title of the, of the new book, uh, The uh, Long Reckoning, comes from a comment that Thomas Jefferson made, I believe it was 1808. The evils of war are great in their endurance and of long reckoning for years to come. I suspect that's where the title came from. That is where the title came from. I always think actually the most difficult part of a book, generally speaking, is the title. <clears throat> and sometimes well, <laughs> you just chance upon something that just nails it and you immediately know. And my editor immediately knew. And I think it's not just applicable to Vietnam. I mean, it's a he was talking about war in Europe. Sure. And why the U.S. should not get entangled in foreign conflicts. Was, was, uh, you can apply it to any war. I mean, we're still living in in Ukraine, where my son is now, through the consequences of World War II. Oh, and you could even say the consequences of World War One. Uh, we learned nothing, as uh, Santiana said. The uh, I was going to say the uh, I, I consider this to be both an important and a necessary book. Uh, I'm going to quote Arthur Schlesinger, who, at the time, speaking of Francis Fitzgerald, had said, "If Americans read only one book to understand what we have done to the Vietnamese and to ourselves, let it be Fire in the Lake." And I may may add, they there are now two books that are required reading. Uh, including yours. Uh, very valuable, very... Uh, personally, I was very lucky. I was in about, with about six weeks of being in, in Nam for Tet, didn't have to go. So uh, reading the early parts of that work uh, were, were painful in uh, yeah, yeah. anticipating something I didn't... I, well, you, you mentioned your editor, John Siegel. You're the second person this week I've interviewed who has been edited by John. And uh, I just want to read a comment that he made before we start to talk. We left behind a mess in Vietnam, and part of that was the residue of the tons and tons and tons of defoliants we employed. Generations of Vietnamese will be affected by it, as well as some Americans. George Black does a wonderful job in his book to detail the extent of the damage, explaining the unimpeachable scientific evidence beautifully. He's also written a truly stirring story of men and women of conscience who aim to redress the longstanding grievance and need of the living victims of the war and succeeded. As reviewers have pointed, the long reckoning is a major contribution to the literature of our misadventure in Vietnam. Say something quickly about John Siegel, who seems, as I've known him over the years, to have taken up the cudgel for important books and important thoughts that need to be out there. Yeah, um, I've never heard that, that missive or message from John, and it's very flattering. He it, it was an interesting process always, you know, you depend a lot on your agent <clears throat> and my agent immediately, as soon as she saw this proposal, said, I want this to go to John Siegel. And my attitude reaction to that was, you know, dream on because he is the editor. He's, he's a legend in the industry. And I was in disbelief, frankly, when he made a nice offer for the book. And he's been... Uh, I wouldn't say this about every editor I've worked with. I mean, he's he's extraordinary because I think of John as being not just a moral force as an editor 
And as you say, he's done some great books and it's very flattering to be with him. But he, as an editor, I think of him as both an architect and a carpenter, which means he has a sense of the overall grand arc of a story. And he has a love of every sentence. He's an old fashioned pencil line editor. You know, you don't get track changes back from John. You get little spidery handwritten pencil notations. And I love that. And he's very sensitive. He's also extremely ruthless in the best possible way. And he got this manuscript and he said, it's 25,000 words too long. And I gulped. I couldn't see where they were going to come from. I ended up cutting about 28,000 and I don't miss a single one of them. So he is a great editor. And as I say, he's driven by a moral vision of what books should be and what history, how history should be told and explained. It's been an absolute joy to work with him. And he's working at the right the right publishing house. I mean, Knopf to me is the gold standard. They, they reflect everything that uh, publishing should be and in some cases isn't today. But, yeah, but enough about John Siegel. His ears will be burning, you know, back in New York. Uh, just before, I want to talk a little bit, uh, to begin with in your prologue, what can we do to help? Uh, just set that up. And uh, I, I'm firmly of the belief that the, the decline in virtual end of America began with Vietnam uh, on, on many, many levels. And maybe you agree or disagree, we can discuss that. But uh, talk about what it was that these young soldiers who were going back to villages that they had bombed, uh, looking at people who were uh, d d deformed and, and suffered unconscionably by their actions and how they were so moved when they went back. Well, I think people went back for many reasons. Not many of them went back to stay. The two at the center of the story, uh, Chuck Searcy, who was in military intelligence in Saigon, Manus Campbell, who fought as a Marine grunt in the worst places at the worst time, uh, and exactly the same time, actually, as Chuck was there during the year of mm. the Tet Center. Um, they went back for many reasons. Some of them, it was a, a search for personal redemption. Some of it, it was curiosity. Uh, some of it, it was the desire to make things right. Some of them started off as anti-war activists. Some of them became anti-war activists. And there are others who were not anti-war activists. And still, uh, one thing I think is so important to understand, even though it doesn't apply to the two central characters in my book, there are others whose politics are very different. Um, there are conservative evangelicals who have gone back to Vietnam and to the same areas of Vietnam. And in one particular case, which I mentioned in the book, have made common cause. Um, the, I know this very, very deeply conservative Trump supporter, you know, Red Maga hat and all, who goes back to the notorious Ashaw Valley every year and works with a very, very liberal anti-war activist, former Marine, to take bicycles to ethnic minority kids so they can get to school. So there are all sorts of motives, but I think the, the unifying factor is that none of them went back and said to the Vietnamese, here's the solution to your problems. You know, here's, here's our idea for fixing Vietnam, because the Vietnamese had heard way too much of that from Americans. 
and it hadn't done them much good. Uh, instead, these people went back and essentially started with a simple question, which was, what do you need and what can we do to help? And I think that's common, not just to the veterans, it's common to the others that I talk about in the book who are at the center of the story, which includes largely two other groups, uh, scientists who wanted to work on Agent Orange and um, a group of women who largely came out of the wartime Quaker tradition, a humanitarian aid tradition. And they all started with that same question. And in each case, you can't understand the work they did without understanding the role that was played by their Vietnamese partners. They all started by asking, by finding Vietnamese and saying, what can we do to help you? In the case of Manus Campbell, the Marine, it was through his discovery of Buddhism. He went to Hue, he became essentially a devotee of the great Buddhist teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh. He found a school that was founded by one of Thich Nhat Hanh's followers, a young nun, and he worked to help the disabled kids. In the case of Chuck Searcy, he went back to run a program that was started by really the most important and prominent of the anti-war vets, Bobby Muller, to provide prosthetics. He went in and said, what do you need? We need artificial limbs. We need prosthetic devices. And he went from that to understanding that the underlying cause of a lot of these injuries and disabilities there were two. One was people were stepping on unexploded bombs, mainly cluster bombs, and the other is that kids were disabled into the third generation by Agent Orange. So that was always the motive that drove these people. And in each case, the Vietnamese partners and initiators of the idea were absolutely critical. The, the scientists who did the pioneering work on Agent Orange, which included both Americans and notably Canadians, they're always to the degree anyone is given the credit, and, and frankly, until my book, I don't think that credit has been sufficiently given, but it wasn't, it should not be primarily, here's the great work that was done by Canadians and Americans. Mm -hmm. It was, here was a joint Vietnamese-American project, and the Canadians brought a set of technical skills that were useful to their Vietnamese partners who had been working on this for years and years without any credit. In fact, being dismissed as propagandists. And they were notable, world-renowned scientists. Oh, it's kind of amazing when you uh, sift through the work and read your work, uh, how little animus seems to remain within the Vietnamese towards the Americans. Uh, considering everything that we did and the personification of these uh, soldiers coming back, you would think that the anger uh, would be so deep, so profound. And, and yet they welcomed them. They, uh, I don't know, they... they Maybe maybe they did forgive them. Maybe there's something in the way that they they're the culture that allows them to uh, gracefully accept uh, an offer that was very painful uh, for these young kids to make. And yet, I think they received them with with open arms and with gratitude. And uh, I don't want to say love; it sounds almost too Buddhist or too. Uh, yeah. uh, but that that was that amazed me. Well, I think it amazes everyone and it sounds like you're being sentimental or over romanticizing that view, but it is it is very, very widespread and very general and every tourist experiences it too. I think American tourists, particularly of that generation, the older generation of visitors, they're astonished to find it. And, you know, there are many, many reasons and I discuss some of them and 
they range from the fact that it's a very young country and most young Vietnamese want to learn English, want to espouse what they see as, you know, if not American values, at least the best of American values, um, all the way through to, you know, the view that, well, we won the war and it was a long time ago. And winning definitely colors your your view of, of your adversary. A little pyrrhic. Um, there's a lot of, I believe very much. I'm sorry? I say a little pyrrhic I, to I, claim I, it as believe, a victory. Yeah, I believe quite strongly that there is a great deal in the deeply entrenched culture, much of which is Buddhist, much of which has to do with ancestor worship, with reverence for family, reverence for place. Um, there is an extraordinary ability to forgive. And you even find it among, you know, I mean, the most moving experiences for me always are going to the homes of Vietnamese families, including families with severely disabled kids, including families who are still searching for their missing in action after, you know, 50 years and finding that there is this spirit of openness and that they do not blame the Americans. I mean, sometimes it's because they believe that punishments inflicted upon them are the result of angry spirits, angry ghosts. Um, sometimes there is a Buddhist belief that it is in light of, of, wrong past actions that you have committed yourself and sometimes it's almost a sort of i wouldn't say flippant but there's there's a view you often hear especially from military people that the americans were only there for 10 years the french were there for a hundred and the french did also horrific things in vietnam i mean it was a very brutal colonial occupation it lasted a hundred years and the Chinese have been oppressing the Vietnamese for 2000 years. So in relative terms, you know, the Americans, what they did was incredibly painful. Human costs were tremendous, but it, it was only a decade. Just so a long view of history. And then the final thing I'd add is that I think veterans inherently respect other veterans, even if they fought against them. Because, you know, people like Manus Campbell went through absolutely every form of hell you can imagine. And so did the Vietnamese fighting on the other side. You know, being on the Ho Chi Minh Trail was a nightmarish experience. Fighting the Vietnamese on the Ho Chi Minh Trail was a horrific experience. They shared that. They lost brothers and sons and uncles and, you know, it, it's a shared experience. I want to. Uh, I do want to talk in, in depth about Manus Campbell and Chuck Searcy, two very disparate personalities uh, who were affected by this war. But uh, in the very beginning, you uh, you educated me about something I was not aware of. We always see Ho Chi Minh as the symbol, and General Jap as the uh, un undefeated general who first destroyed the French at Dien Bien Phu, and uh, and then took us out. But you also mentioned two people called uh, Li Duan and. Uh, Gwen Shi Tan, excuse my pronunciation, I yeah, didn't yeah. get there. Uh, talk about the importance of those two people who are almost never mentioned. Well, they aren't. And I think that's one interesting thing about writing a book now that I, I would see the, the books that have been written about the war in Vietnam as falling into two, gen <clears throat> two generations. And the first and much longer generation 
was reliant upon the source materials that were available at the time. And they had the unfortunate effect of cementing in the minds of most American readers the idea, as you say, that Ho Chi Minh was the mastermind of the victory and that General Zapp, who had defeated the French at Dien Bien Phu in 1954, was also the architect of the war effort against the Americans. It's only really in the last 15, maybe 20 years that a new generation of scholars have had access to Vietnamese archives and have done really serious research onto what was happening in Hanoi at the time. And their insights, which I drew on quite heavily, have not made it into the popular uh, trade book general readership market. Uh, and they cast a very, very different picture, in some ways a much less flattering picture. You know, there was no doubt that Ho Chi Minh was the inspirational figure who inspired the Vietnamese Revolution. There's no doubt that General Zap was a military genius. But by the time the Americans went into Vietnam in a serious way, um, which I would count even as early as 1963, before the Marines landed in 65, the power, the shots were being called in Hanoi by these two other people you mentioned. And Les Zuan was, not to mince words, he was a brutal and dogmatic Stalinist. <clears throat> and he really controlled with his followers the Politburo as early as 1963. He had a prime military ally, General Nguyen Thi Tang, who was the only other five-star general in Vietnam other than Zap. And both of those people had grown up and cut their teeth in the area where Manus Campbell fought, the two provinces, in fact. <clears throat> Les Zuan was a native of Country province, immediately below the demilitarized zone. And Nguyen Chi Tan was a native of Thuyen Tien Hue province, immediately to the south. And those two provinces, to me, are the key to understanding the war. Um, or very, very significant portions of the war. And they're the key to understanding the worst destruction. There's a lot of geographical and political reasons for that. They have to do with where Vietnam was divided when the French left, where the DMZ was drawn. They have to do with the topography um, of the mountains, which largely cut those two provinces off from the rest of South Vietnam. They're where much of the most brutal fighting against the French took place, and they're where these two leading political and military figures had their own war experiences and were greatly angered by the fact that the French were given control over those two provinces. And uh, so when the debates began about the war, which happened really during the height of the split between the Soviet Union and the, and the Chinese, Mao Zedong's China. Ho Chi Minh and General Zap largely inclined to the Soviet view, which was do not provoke the Americans to intervene. Take a long-term view, be cautious, put a lot of emphasis on diplomacy. 
And the Chinese view, which at that point was extremely impetuous, which was, you know, there was a great global struggle against American imperialism. And it's an oversimplification to say that Lei Zuan was pro-Chinese and, and Ho Chi Minh was, was pro-Soviet. But broadly speaking, Lei Zuan was more radical and believed that the price of the way the country had been divided after the French was that it had abandoned, and the Soviet line was abandoning the Southern revolutionaries. And the Southern revolutionaries had to be aggressively supported. Ho Chi Minh and General Zapp, at key moments, including the preparation of the Tet Offensive in 1968, they warned that it was reckless to launch a frontal attack across the whole of South Vietnam to destroy American and South Vietnamese regiments, battalions on a large scale. They warned that it wasn't going to work, and it didn't work. It was militarily absolutely disastrous. Politically, you could argue that it was a success, and they did, because it really did mark a turning point in, in Americans' view of the war. And it dispelled the idea that there was, you know, famously light at the end of the tunnel. The interesting thing is that there was a strongly held view within the American military at that point, including General Westmoreland, the commander in chief of American forces, that the war was stalemated. And essentially, you could either fight a war of attrition, which the Vietnamese were the masters of, and the United States was never going to accomplish at a, at a tolerable cost in lives, or a war of annihilation. And that literally meant the willingness to use tactical nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, uh, even bacteriological weapons were discussed. And it that became, that was a politically untenable position and Westmoreland came home on the eve of the Tet Offensive to see Lyndon Johnson and said, we're not winning this war. It's going badly. And Johnson said to him, you can't tell the American people that. You've got to go to the National Press Club and make a big speech. This is two months before the Tet Offensive saying we're winning the war. The end is in sight. Westmoreland himself didn't believe it, but he went along with what his president ordered. A lot of people followed orders, just to, to borrow a phrase from another war. Uh, let's talk about Manus Campbell and, and Chuck Searcy, since I think they represent two very different uh, personalities uh, from ver two very different backgrounds who at some level uh, came together in their thinking, not uh, around their experience and what it represented and what they wanted to see going forward. So first of all, who was Manus Campbell? Manus was from a lower middle class, you'd probably say family in New Jersey. His father was a salesman for a hardware business. Um, one of six kids, Catholic family, and wanted to be a hero for his father, which I think is a common theme um, in a lot of these kids. I mean, you've got to remember, these were 18, 19 year old kids. They were much, much younger than the soldiers who served in World War II. Manus was barely 19 when he signed up. And, you know, most 19-year-old kids, they have a lot of testosterone, but they don't necessarily want to go out and kill other human beings. They have to be taught 
to think of other human beings in a way that will allow them to do that. And Manus was a quiet kid. Um, <clears throat> his father was a very hard taskmaster. And Manus decided to compensate for that by bulking up, becoming a swim champion, becoming a hero. And if you wanted to be a hero, you joined the Marines. They were the legendary combat troops. They were the best. Um, so Manus joined the Marines and was assigned to this particular area, these two provinces, which were the northernmost part of what was known as I-Corps. South Vietnam was divided into four combat zones. And I-Corps was the northernmost, and Quang Tri and Thua Tien provinces were the two northernmost parts of it. And they were where the fighting was particularly brutal. So he experienced really all of the worst places. He was on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, on the Lao border. He was at the famous marine outpost of Con Tien, which was right on the DMZ and was shelled and mortared constantly. He had quite a few near-death experiences. And, and of all the features of post-traumatic stress disorder, you can probably say that survivor guilt is the core of a lot of that experience. You're always, you come back wanting to be a hero. You find that in practice, you're just another terrified kid who's cowering in a firing hole as people around you are being dismembered and slaughtered and you're doing the slaughtering yourself of the other side and Manus has all these stories you know diving into a fighting hole under fire and the guy next to him takes a bullet and he's inches away from Manus's head and Manus survives there's another occasion where his unit is overrun in the night by elite North Vietnamese regulars and his lieutenant says, get out of that fighting hole. I'm going to take that one. You take the next one. Guy jumps into the hole and a shell hits it or a grenade hits it. And he's killed. So you come back with that measure of guilt. And the experience of combat troops in general, and I'd make a, a distinction between the combat troops and the 80% who never fired a shot in anger. And you've got to remember that only 20% of those who went to Vietnam actually fought. But their families had no comprehension of what they'd experienced. And they couldn't talk about it because they didn't come back as heroes. They came back having lost the war. And their girlfriends and wives didn't know what to make of that. Society as a whole had never had to deal with the experience of losing a foreign war. So there was a kind of national trauma and they became the victims of that. And I think really were, I mean, some of the stories about them being spat upon are exaggerated, but it did happen. There are plenty of documented instances. But in general, society just, you know, didn't want to know about the war, didn't want to know about the veterans. And Manus went through a, you know, every case was unique. They all experienced it in different ways. But, you know, the common elements were alcohol abuse, drug abuse, failed marriages, terrible personal experiences. And he found his own personal salvation through Buddhism. That's and uh, quite a few did. And, and Mr. Searcy, you came from a quite a contrasting background. Totally different background. Uh, small town, Georgia, born, born in Alabama. Father was a manager of the local Coca-Cola plant. Um, 
went to University of Georgia, signed up for the military because every boy in the family always had. His father was a World War II veteran, POW from the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, his mother thought his father was dead for a year before he was returned and he was skin and bone. His brother went into the Navy, Chuck went into the Army and opted for Army intelligence. Um, he dropped out of college, but being in Army intelligence, I mean, he's very, very bright. And, you know, he was assigned to a military intelligence battalion in Saigon experienced the Tet Offensive in Saigon and was going through an experience where he was in a unit, which was actually a fairly senior unit within military intelligence. He's 21 years old, 22. He's part of a small group that is processing and analyzing all of the intelligence coming up through the food chain in this battalion of hundreds of people, um, American and South Vietnamese. And he's beginning to see, and he's surrounded by a lot of bright college kids. And they're reading Ho Chi Minh's speeches. They're reading historical analyses. They're reading the same newspapers and magazines people at home are reading. And they're producing intelligence, which they begin to see is what the generals and the politicians want to believe that the war is accomplishing. And it's not the war that is actually happening. And a lot of that comes to a head with the calculation of the body count. And Cersei at one point says, you know, we're killing more Vietnamese than there are Vietnamese. These figures, and one lieutenant he works with says these figures are cooked. And he's sent back and sent back to his commanding officers who say, Lieutenant, go back and calculate those numbers again. So he goes back and does them again, and they come out the same. So they become aware of this culture of deceit and, and lying and, and putting a rosy face on things that are not rosy. And the disillusionment sets in there. But nonetheless, when he comes back, he's not a radical by any means. There are a lot of radicals in the anti-war movement. He's very um, moderate and cautious. He works in mainstream politics for many years. You know, he goes out and gives talks to rotary clubs and kiwanis and uh you know hands out leaflets at uga bulldogs football games um but gradually he becomes very focused on the idea that the government has conducted this war on the basis of lies and he goes back finally in 1994 after a career of quite a few years in washington he runs a senate campaign he becomes a congressional staffer and he's still very much you know by the time he goes back to vietnam he's learned a lot about the workings of politics and how to make change and how to get legislation through and he applies those skills to vietnam goes back in 94 and never leaves you know, um, <clears throat> we don't have enough time to talk in, in depth as i would like uh about agent orange and and max cleland uh, but let's briefly talk about the, the those horrible behaviors and uh, Ms., Mr. Reagan and everybody else in office who's treated all these returning veterans so disgracefully. Yeah, I mean, I think the Reagan administration bears 
bears a lot more blame than it normally has received, but also deserves a certain amount of credit that it is not being given. And that's paradoxical. The, you know, Reagan came in saying Vietnam was a noble cause. And in his first term, uh, there was a great deal of, you know, the Rambo phenomenon, the kind of, you know, do we get to win this time was the famous line from Rambo. And you get these fantastic conspiracy theories about there being living POWs who are being kept in secret camps in Laos and so forth. So, and the Reagan administration is also prosecuting a very dirty war in Central America. And a lot of people are seeing that as, you know, the sequel to Vietnam, the next Vietnam. And all of the military advisors who served in El Salvador particularly were drawn from special forces from the Vietnam era. In the second term, two things happened. One was that despite all the talk, Reagan treated the Veterans Administration really badly. He starved their budgets. Um, his administration falsified, you know, had to conduct scientific studies of the medical impacts of Agent Orange because so many vets were getting sick. But they arranged the studies to find the conclusions that they wanted for political reasons. At the same time, they realized around 1987, toward the end of the administration, that the hard line they were taking with Vietnam was not accomplishing the primary goal without which no other goals could be addressed, and that was to bring back the missing in action. And so they began a process of opening. In 1987, Reagan sent a special envoy to Vietnam, a very honorable general, uh, who saw that there had to be an opening toward normalizing relations. And that did begin, even though it didn't end until the Clinton administration, it did begin under Reagan. And uh, I know a general who was deeply involved in that process. And I think from conversations with him that there was that amount of good in the second Reagan term. It still took until the George H.W. Bush government for the Vietnamese, the Vietnam veterans to get the Agent Orange Act and the entitlement to benefits, disability benefits, if they suffered from diseases that could not be proven categorically to be associated, but they established this thing called the Presumptive Service Association, which is if you'd been in Vietnam during those years um, and you developed one of a series of diseases, you were eligible, eligible for benefits. None of that, of course, was extended to the Vietnamese for many, many years afterward. How many, are we talking about the 54,600 whatever Americans died? How many Vietnamese died in our war? No one knows. Um, the standard estimate from the Vietnamese and French, uh, the American and French wars combined is 3 million dead. No one knows how many, Amer how many Vietnamese missing in action remain. Uh, the common estimate is about 300,000. Um, the US government has finally agreed in the last two years to provide a very modest amount of aid to help Vietnam recover its war dead, identify them through DNA analysis, and give them a proper burial, which is an important thing for Vietnamese because, as I said, they, they have a very deep sense of ancestry and land, and you have to be given a decent burial in your home soil 
to lie with your ancestors, otherwise you can't make the peaceful voyage to the next world. But again, the thing is the Americans spend well over $100 million a year looking for 1,500 remaining missing in action. And I think that's a fine and honorable thing to do. You send your young men to war. I think it is a humanitarian obligation to bring them back. Um, nonetheless, the double standard is very glaring, but you will never hear the Vietnamese talk about that. I, I went on my last trip in November to several families' homes, and it was, thank heavens the Americans are helping us. That's very generous. We're really delighted, which is kind of extraordinary. And, and I think a lot of American veterans who went back find that very humbling. George, we just have about two minutes and then the Zoom people will cut us off. Two right. quick questions to answer. Uh, what was it that motivated you after 50 years since the end of the war to write this book? And what do you hope people get out of it uh, in the reading? Well, the proximate cause is that I met Chuck Searcy in 2014, and I said, there is a story here. Then I met Manus Campbell soon after that, and I said, here are two people at the heart of the story. And they alone were probably not enough to carry the book. I had to meet the scientists. I had to meet these women out of the religious tradition. And I saw that there was really the emblem there of what, you know, Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, once famously said, you know, never doubt that a small group of determined individuals can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So I wanted to tell an inspirational story. And I also wanted to tell a story that had universal application to all wars. You know, the particularities of Vietnam are what they are, but every war has this sequel. And I suppose at some deep level, I'd grown up in the United Kingdom in the decades after World War II, and our neighborhood was bombed to smithereens. There were still bomb sites in the 60s. And I think that had left an impression on me about how long wars drag on for. And what do you hope that uh, people get out of this book? The idea that it is possible for ordinary people to accomplish, to force governments to do what they don't want to do. All of the things that have been accomplished were things that were fiercely resisted by the American government for many, many reasons, largely bitterness, largely a refusal to accept that America could do bad things and all sorts of bureaucratic reasons, um, entrenched interests in Washington. And I think these people have achieved not everything, but absolutely remarkable successes. And let, let us States. stop on that one before we cut you off. Yeah. Once again, my guest has been George Black, The Long Reckoning, uh, what I would call a, a necessary book. Uh, go out, read it. It's instructive for both from what had occurred and the world we're living in today. Once again, George, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, same here. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us and for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com and subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris.